Have you ever wondered what goes on behind the scenes of the restaurant industry? I'm Katie Osuna, the host of Copper and Heat, the James Beard award-winning podcast that explores the unspoken rules and traditions of restaurants. Each episode is a narrative deep dive asking questions like, why do we tip? Why are restaurants so financially precarious? Why are tasting menus a thing? And what do restaurant awards really say about what's good? Hear from chefs, restaurant workers, food anthropologists, and more. Find Copper and Heat wherever you listen. I'm Jerusha Klemperer, the host of What You're Eating, a podcast from foodprint.org. We're back this fall with all new episodes to help you understand how your food gets to your plate and see the full impact of the food system on animals, planet, and people. We'll continue to uncover problems with the industrial food system and offer examples of more sustainable practices, as well as practical advice for how you can help create a better world through the food that you buy and the system changes you push for. Have you been wondering why people are drinking oat milk instead of cow's milk? Or curious how you're supposed to choose which eggs to buy when there are so many to choose from? Or frustrated by the amount of plastic packaging your food comes in? Or wondering what labels to look for to know which food is best for the environment? From practical conversations with farmers and chefs to discussions with policy experts on the barriers to a just and sustainable food system, What You're Eating covers everything from the why to the how. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow along every other week for new episodes and more answers to the questions you have about what you're eating. A taste of place, of time, of space, of memory. How do we find a way to belong, a way to look to the past, and to build a future? My name is Dr. Anna Sulan Mussing, and I hope to answer those questions as we explore taste and memory throughout this series. Welcome to Taste of Place, a Whetstone Radio Collective podcast. Earlier this year, Queen Elizabeth II passed away as the longest reigning monarch of the UK. Many mourned the loss of a fixture of British life for generations. But many more were reminded once again of the colonial legacy that still remained even after her passing. I think about this every time I go home to Borneo, when I have coffee in the beautifully maintained, repurposed, colonial courthouse in Kuching, or walk past Fort Sylvia at the riverside in Kapit, which is now a museum of the town's beginnings. These buildings, like many others, are a source of historical pride as well as generational trauma, reminders of foreign law that was enforced, and also the agency to reshape and change, an acknowledgement of being present during those times. Memories of colonialism are messy, and the past is a living memory. Throughout Taste of Place, we have delved into the idea of flavor and scent in relationship to memory and our idea of nostalgia. In this episode, The Power of Storytelling, we explore how sometimes those nostalgic memories are couched in the scars of colonialism, and how understanding those contradictions can help us better understand what we're truly nostalgic for. I speak with visual artist Shiraz Beju, pop-up creator Zolita Makangaleli, and anthropologist Maitri Jagatisan to contextualize everything we've discussed. <laughs> 
about place and food and learn more about the power and meaning behind sharing common space with others. My name is Shiraz Beiju and I'm a visual artist. I work across lots of mediums with different kinds of communities, predominantly focused upon Western Indian Ocean, East Africa. My name is Zolita Makengelele from South Africa, Cape Town. I run a pop-up project called The Cook's Table, a dining experience celebrating and speaking to artists and being able to work with them and translate what they do through food. As always, I begin with the same question I ask all my guests. What does pepper mean to you? I guess I discovered a much bigger world of pepper in my 20s when I was able to visit and be in different places. In Mauritius, pepper was not an ingredient that stood out on its own. It's used as part of other ground spices that are in a spice mix or a masala mix or gram masala mix. But very rarely did we ever use pepper just individually on its own. When I grew up knowing pepper on its own, it was to have it on things like eggs, which was more synonymous with Globe North. And I remember my grandmother making the eggs when I would stay with her in my school holidays. And she would be trying to cook me the breakfast that she thought I would eat in the UK and put pepper on it. Black pepper doesn't jumps to mind when you start cooking. And it's not anything that's been familiar with the food that I grew up eating and even the food that I cook, really. I met up with Shiraz and Zolita while they were preparing for their culinary pop-up. Shiraz and I go way back. I met him when I was doing my PhD. I had read an interview with him in one of my favourite magazines where he spoke so eloquently about the topics I was researching, about home, belonging and diasporic relationships with colonialism and the post-colonial spaces. I reached out and was so grateful when he replied and we arranged to grab a coffee. By chance, he lived around the corner from me. And even more exciting was he was looking for someone to join his studio space and I needed a place to work. This was the beginning of a friendship that has lasted over a decade and involved many eating, drinking, storytelling and in-depth discussions of identity space, food, and memory. But one of the things I look back on is the time we shared the studio space. I would work late afternoon and evenings, and Shiraz would be there during the day. Our paths rarely crossed, but each day I would arrive and something new had been added to a piece of artwork. All around me the space was growing and changing. I felt like I was working in a living space, and Shiraz was building us a home away from home. The works were both familiar and comforting and changing and new. And the works related to so much that I was doing that they were provocative of thought and emotions for me, as well as inspirations. There were pieces of home furniture that Shiraz was reimagining in new ways with paint and colonial images imposed on them. It was the domestic space recreated. During the period that we were sharing the studio together, I was working on this body of work based around Mauritius, my place of origin, of home, of family. Thinking through how the sort of movement towards independence, a colony island, what is the mechanisms, what are the ways that they move towards that? One of the things that I understood very early on is that politics, the grassroots of politics, always starts in the most humble of spaces. And that the biggest movements, the movements, independence movements, movements of freedom, they start in people's kitchens. They start in the very simplest of settings. 
And when we start to think about what the language, what the aesthetics of that is, of how do we describe our own histories when we're laying out the foundations of understanding, these spaces were spaces of family. They don't start off in grand holes or in big marches, particularly when you're talking about the process of decolonization. When I start to think about that space, it is domestic space, it is the home. And I guess in that way, we start to realize the spaces we create in our studios, those safe spaces that allows us to do this work, that allows us to hold these conversations, these conversations about authoring your own future. Zolita Makangalele's work is also about sharing space and building a sense of home and belonging into these creative studio spaces. Here, she takes this idea of sharing a space and home further afield, opening it up. Having been privileged in being able to hang out in my friend's studios, art studios, I felt it was a space that needed to be shared and being able to cook and loving to cook and watching people eat. What better way of bringing the two together and having other people to experience that with me? So in what you're saying, I'm creating all being the author of the spaces that you want to be in and what they should look like or how you imagine them and how you want to share them with others. The actual feeling of being in the space in conversation, not just about the work, but about the thought process, what's nourishing in mind, body and soul while he's in that space. And what best way to use the tool that I know best, but to cook and say, come, I'll cook. Come and experience what I'm feeling when I'm in this artist space and what food is and how he relates with food or they relate with food when they're in that space. Zolita's work is so interesting as it blurs the line between public and private, home and the rest of the world. It is a fascinating process because artworks do have to leave the studio space at some point to be in the public space of a gallery. But what happens when your work is so centred on the personal and the home? How do you navigate the idea of home when the work itself is in public view? In considering this question, there is a piece of artwork of Shiraz's that has always stayed in my mind. It is an image of his grandmother's house in Mauritius. There are a lot of plants in the work, and at first glance, the space depicted could be seen as being indoors or outdoors, perhaps conveying a duality. But it, to me, does feel a very intimate private space. The language of those spaces was so important to me, which is why they enter into being artworks and why it feels important to share that with others. I haven't always presented that work, making it explicitly clear that this is a private family space. But people who've seen that work and do know where it's from have asked me if they could come to the house to see the real place. And I've always denied them because in the end, the real place is really very, very precious. And that does stay very private. But there are aspects of ourselves that we feel resonate deeply as symbolism, and sometimes we need to share those. Things that get left in the studio that you never get to see in the white box. So when you're in the gallery, you need to go and present it. When you are in that space where his entire thought process happens, spends most of his hours in, and it's, it's a privilege to be in that space. And even more of a privilege for me to be able to bring others in. You trusting in that I'll bring the right people to share that with them as well. It's also a nice experience. Zolita's events allow people to see and share the personal landscape of the artist, even the parts that won't make it to the gallery. She is part of creating a story of the artists and that space. But how do we understand space when thinking about the past and building new stories? 
the late geographer Doreen Massey investigated the idea of space, time and nostalgia. She wrote about an experience of arriving back to her mother's house as an adult, in which her mother had not made the cake she always made. She had experimented with a new recipe. Professor Massey was deeply disappointed in this, but realised she had placed home and her mother in a static space of childhood. To quote Dr. Massey, The past is no more static than the present. Nostalgia, constitutively, plays with notions of space and time. When nostalgia articulates space and time in such a way that it robs others of their histories, their stories, then indeed we need to rework nostalgia. I asked Zolita about her relationship with storytelling. Does she feel responsible for these stories? How does she balance realities and not creating romantic notions of the artist at work? And what does storytelling mean to her? What I said at the beginning was the trust, which is very important, is creating that trust with the person's story that you're about to tell. I try and create a space where the story tells itself by being in the space, so I'm not actually standing and narrating what's happening and what's about to happen. There's so many angles or things or parts of a story that you miss. You listen to a story, you listen to the best parts that you understand, and then you reinterpret it in the way that you heard it. And you miss out on a lot of things. A lot of people ask me, oh, where's the footage? Why don't we have any Instagram stories? Part of what I'm proud of what I do is that fact that there isn't a moment in those moments for anyone to take out their picture with the artist or of the food, which means they were involved, they were there, they experienced it fully or you need to be in the moment and experience it. And it genuinely happens. I get a bit teary I'm goosebumps. It literally genuinely happens. My best feedback is when the artist says, my gosh, that's the best time I've had in my studio. I stand back and let the stories tell itself and let the pages write themselves. I want you to experience it the way you want. There's always beer, there's always food, there's always music, there's always art happening. So it's exactly the same experience, but yours has been made, it's been prepared and heightened. Glad to know that I'm a storyteller. A conversation naturally moved on to how we retell histories, such as the story of Pepper. The best way to do it is to do it with the community, folks who are part of that history, part of that story, alongside them. I think where that's not possible, where maybe those communities or those stories, one spends a lot of time thinking whether you should be working with something at all to begin with. I think there's a lot of factors that have to be very carefully navigated. But ultimately, it's about treading very carefully and listening. I guess it's reframing. It's allowing others to tell their own stories and to break away from some of the stereotypes that we have imagined. We imagine entire regions of people through often very reductionist lenses. I don't think it's just important for this moment in time. One of the things that we have to continuously do is to reassess our relationship with the past to understand it with the new insights that we have today, to reframe and allow others to take that space on. And I think in that sense, going back to cuisine and recipe, we find so many lines of connection between us. For example, here on the Cape, here in South Africa, one of the biggest exports is snook fish. Snook fish is the most sought after salt fish in Mauritius. It's one of our delicacies to eat. And yet that is a fish that is so incredibly synonymous with slavery as a form of protein, as a food source. 
you start to see very simple sort of immediacy of being in a place. You can see these connections. You can see those movements of people. And you can start to even understand the labor movements of people that have taken place just around that singular product. And the routes, the trade routes, the sea routes, all these things start to expand up. And I think as we better understand our own histories around our own cuisine, where and how they have hybridized to be where they are today, it continues to evolve, right? And I think that's something quite precious, quite important there. This idea of evolution, labor and trade, is so connected to how I navigated my relationship with the past, with the story of Pepper as the conduit. As time has gone on, I've evolved the way I've looked at this plant, seen the labor that goes into farming it, and tried to find a different history than the one that typically gets told. In my investigation of diaspora and building home, I see all these threads as being connected and need to be woven together so we can understand our place in the world, which then allows us to dream of an equitable future. But before the dreaming can begin, I wanted to find a way to unite these seemingly different strands of thinking. Speaking with anthropologist Maitri Jagatisan about the space of tea plantations in Sri Lanka helped me contextualize these thoughts. My name is Maitri Jagatisan. I am calling from the ancestral lands in the territories of the Muwekma Ohlone and the Tamyan Nation. Maitri Jagatisan is an associate professor at Santa Clara University and has thought long and hard about the effects of colonialism not only in Sri Lanka, but also in indigenous communities across the globe. I begin my conversation with Maitri like I... What does pepper mean to you? I think of my mother's spice cupboard. I think of our spice cover and particularly the smell of it. It was a staple in our kitchen growing up and it was often one of the spices I would see outside my home. I grew up in Connecticut in a predominantly white area in the 1980s, which was not a very comforting place. So I would see pepper. I was always amazed that I would see it in places like restaurants on the table, in grade school, at the kitchen, at the cafeteria. I'd be like, oh, there's a pepper shaker. So what does this mean? And I knew it could make things spicy. I knew that because my mother would use it. It was almost like this connector between things that I knew in the home and things outside of my home. On a more physical level, I think it was something that I knew could provide healing. My mother would put it in things that she would prepare, and that was for colds, it was for sore throats, things like that. So I just knew it was healing in that sense. There is a dish, and it's called rasam. I always think black pepper is the critical ingredient. It's a tamarind-based broth that has garlic, tomatoes, curry leaves, mustard, cumin seed, coriander seed, coriander leaves, and it's stewed. And the black pepper is critical to the spice level, but then also the way that it mixes with the coriander, it has this healing property. Pepper for Maitri was something that was anchored in her mother's food and cooking from her cultural heritage. And therefore, it was something she knew as coming from somewhere else, not the U.S. This led us to discuss how, as I brought up before, the global south feeds the global north through a flow of goods established from colonial trade, with pepper being a key example of how this is still happening. I wanted to know how that relationship plays out in contemporary spaces. There are so many dialogues happening right now in Sri Lanka about the need for self-sufficiency, going into this archive of what went wrong. 
What's happening in Sri Lanka is one of the worst economic crises that the country has experienced. And the crisis itself is a food crisis and it's a fuel crisis. But people are saying it's related to certain points in the last 10 years and so forth. But it's actually, as some have argued, a long time in the coming, right? It's decades of poor decision making on very majoritarian ethno-nationalist governments to disregard minority rights, but also really promote this infrastructural development development post-war, to centralize power in the presidency, and to not trust those who were producing that food, mainly rural farmers, those who were economically marginalized, and also minorities, communities that I work with, Malayah Tamils or Hill Country Tamils, on the tea and rubber plantations. And so what ended up happening was the government went into severe debt, and then all the foreign reserves plummeted. On the smaller level, most plantation workers don't even have the tea to drink, right? But they're making that tea and paying back the country's debt. But the self-sufficiency component is missing in that sense of actually caring for the workers that are producing these crops or producing these commodities that are paying back debt. I wanted to think about plantations more specifically, this idea of mapping of space and time. But how do we bring the past into the present and reimagine or tell new stories that give power to those who've been marginalised? So how does the past and the present relate or talk to each other within these spaces? It is hard not to see the colonial past on the contemporary tea plantations in Sri Lanka. In some cases, it's very blatant. For instance, Macwood's tea plantation to have a cup of tea in their tea room you see a glass enclosure and the spoon that Prince Charles has used for his tea and his sugar and his milk tea is sitting there. But then there are the other kind of smaller gestures, whether it's the superintendent's hiked up boots or khaki wardrobe that they wear, the bigger umbrellas. So I think one way to kind of trouble that is to actually talk to people about what they want in their lives, speaking to workers, thinking about what they do to nourish their families, their homes, plots of land that are next to their homes, that are unowned plots of land. This is how people were living within it and surviving within it and still managed to do things quite creatively. It's like a lifting of a magician's curtain, right? The way to cultivate land, the expertise and the knowledge lies with those agricultural workers that have a history and indenture, colonial migration, and longer legacies of enslavement and dispossession. Then you start to see that the trust actually should lie with them. And then what could happen to these plots of land and to the plantations? So I think centering on those really troubles the vista for me. It troubles the landscape. And it also, at the same time, there are people, communities and workers that find that landscape beautiful and they should find it beautiful if that's their home, right? So how do we sit with the different forms and to center what beauty actually is or what home actually is? Maitri's work looks at the migrant communities that work the tree plantations and how they have made home and the creativity of that act. This work allows spaces of labour to be seen as spaces of beauty and home. To me, on the plantations, home is so much sensorially rooted in knowledge that has accumulated over generations. And on the landscape itself, you'll see hotels, guest houses, things that have come up very recently. But to me, can be really helpful to see that accumulation of knowledge. 
or to actually go with workers to talk to them about the footpaths that they made 20, 30 years ago, but they're overgrown. They're not a footpath anymore, but to them, they're still a footpath and they can still provide access to get through a plantation in a more effective way than any other footpath would get them. But they made that footpath, so they created it. They carved the rock, they took tools, and they were hired to do this. They were employees, but at the same time, they know the terrain of labor and of life to make their way through that overgrown footpath. They knew where to go. And I think that's the interesting thing is that not many people outside of the workers have that knowledge that knowledge of how to actually grip a slippery rock that is in the rain with your toes because you don't have shoes on and you have 18 kilograms of tea on your back. And that's passed down through bodies and of people saying to their mothers, I see your body, I see you as valuable. It's such an important passing down of knowledge. When your kin create that place, that's what I think of as home. Obviously, there are shifts with more and more children working outside of the plantations because they don't see plantation work as dignified and that troubles the sense of home in many ways across generations. But then I think even in those troubling spaces when children are coming back to the plantations having worked elsewhere and they're bringing gifts, they're bringing remittances, things that would not exist on the plantations without that extra currency coming in. Things like glass window panes, television sets that are flat screen or speakers, things like that come in and they sit alongside the older objects as well. So an ummi that it's a spice grinder that's been passed down for 200 years or photographs of the dead that hang on the walls, for instance, in reverence. And so those are existing alongside of that. And I think that too is home. Reframing these spaces is truly an act of storytelling. And I wanted to ask Maitri, how do we tell these stories? How do we build new relationships across global spaces that allow for complexities without having a voyeuristic lens? You're probably worried about that because you've seen it before, right? And we've seen it in development narratives. You see it replicated over and over again, not only in the international development worlds, but anthropology is known for this, of being the voice of the voiceless and so forth. And I think what's so helpful about Mohanty's work... Chandra Mohanty is a feminist scholar. In her book, Under a Western Sky... She writes about the idea of how the global South is often seen as a monolith and investigates how we can work in solidarity across spaces, across the world. She has this guiding voice that is carefully thinking of who benefits from the idea of the monolith, right? So if the monolith is the voiceless or the marginalized or those on the periphery and so forth, who benefits from that And then also, once they benefit from it, what are the social financial forms of capital that accumulate? And then how do they use it and exercise power with it, but also around those monoliths so they get exercised in a particular way? And I think there's a stickiness to it. And that's maybe what you're referring to is the stickiness and contradictions. Throughout the journey we have traveled together on this show, there have been many moments of stickiness, as Maitri says. There is joy in seeing others' joy in eating Sarawak pepper, seeing it in favourite London restaurants, witnessing the lack of transparency in supply chains, navigating the difference of beautiful descriptions of Sarawak pepper flavours, then simultaneously the romanticisation of Sarawak pepper as a marketing ploy. What is your understanding of nostalgia and how does it relate to building home and belonging? 
I think nostalgia is always first and foremost a decision. Are we going to indulge? And it could end badly. It's a decision to engage the past in a particular way. As I think of my own childhood being outside of Sri Lanka and not knowing certain things, whether about ethno-nationalist violence, my own family's histories, their displacement while I was here and quite privileged, but my family in Sri Lanka was being displaced and thinking about the decisions they made and what does it mean to have nostalgia for their food, for their cooking, for their love. I guess the question is, what does it mean to ethically take it up, the past? What happens when we come upon something in that process that is violent or painful for others? What do we then do? So it's another decision. So I see it as these strings of decisions. I recently wrote about my mother's fish cutlets. And right now there's this awful food shortage and people don't have enough money to cook it in the oil. There's no oil to cook in and no gas cylinders to heat up the oil, right? So I was thinking sometimes our nostalgia is too violent to stomach our desires for those memories and it's too violent. And then what do we do with that? So do we hold off or is it a form of disciplining ourselves, but also thinking more ethically about the nostalgia at work? There is no easy way to navigate personal nostalgia. It is a constant conversation that has many sticking points. I like this outlook that my three has to think ethically about nostalgia and to know that is a decision we make, and therefore to have intent with that decision. We need to relook at our pasts and to really see where the harm and violence comes when we indulge in nostalgia, so that we don't continue to perpetuate inequality. So we don't see the colonial past with romance, but for the destructive systems and structures they created. But there is also joy in our pasts and reacquainting ourselves with those places and spaces when we do make the decision to indulge in nostalgia, to pick moments of nostalgic joy and share them with those we care about, our communities. We are able to create new shared spaces and build new narratives. Thank you so much for listening to episode nine of Taste of Place. Thank you to my wonderful guests, Shiraz Beju, Zolita Makangalele, and Maitri Jagatisan. I'd like to thank my producer, Catherine Yang, audio editor, Diana Kapulong, researcher, Caroline Merrifield, and intern, Ashley Choi. I'd also like to thank Whetstone founder, Stephen Satterfield, Whetstone Radio Collective executive producer, Celine Glazier, sound engineer, Max Cuddlechuck, music director, Catherine Yang, managing producer, Marvin Yeo, associate producer, Quentin Lebeau, production coordinator, Shabnam Fidosi, production assistant, Maha Saned, and publicist, Melissa Horton. Theme music created by Catherine Yang and cover art created by Whetstone art director, Alex Bowman. You can learn more about this podcast on whetstoneradio.com, on Instagram and Twitter at Whetstone Radio, on TikTok at Whetstone Media, and subscribe to our Spotify and YouTube channel, Whetstone Media, for more podcast content. You can learn more about all things happening at Whetstone at whetstonemedia.com.